Welcome to the audio podcast, the weekly sermon of the First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. We continue our multi-access worship both online and our recently renovated sanctuary. Sunday morning service is in person at 11 a.m. and we are live on firstchurchbrooklyn.org as well as the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Now, this week's message. Good morning. It is both my honor and a very humbling thing to climb up to the pulpit where so many great minds and souls, including many in this room today, have stood over the course of more than 200 years to offer us a glimpse of heaven and a pathway to peace. I'm going to tell you straight off that I won't even attempt to say what we might do in response to the brutal slaughter of civilians in the Holy Land. The only immediately useful thing I can offer is something I remember from Jack Rhoda, my pastor at a church called Church of the Servant that I went to in college. He was speaking not just about this latest death match of cousin against cousin, and not just about the grief of these mothers and these fathers, these sisters and these brothers, although it's an evil that has flared up time and again in that sacred, deeply embattled place before even Jesus' day where we take our story for today. What Jack had to say was even bigger about that, the bigger than that. It was about the problem of evil itself. And I pass it on to you in hopes that it will give you some measure of comfort too, even and especially in dark hours such as these. He said that if the purpose of this world is to amass wealth or wield power, to inspire fear, to possess influence, or to seal oneself off from the pains of this world with luxury, well, then of course there is no justice. But if the purpose of life really is to nurture and exercise and grow a soul expansive enough as to stand before the face of God and not be consumed, then the torturers, the egoists, the hard-hearted, The hoarders of wealth and those who murder the hopes of children are sorely punished. And here we see that truly our God has not called us to play judge or executioner. He has not called us to vengeance, but rather to the work of welcome, of refuge, and of joy. So now let us feed and exercise our souls this morning with the teaching of Jesus about the things we do need to do and choices that we do have to make in the journeys of our lives. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When Connor first asked me if I would be interested in preaching sometime, I said no. Or maybe later. Sometime when I felt like I had something big or important to say. I could not imagine when that might be. But then I started thinking about the way that the story that Mary Lee read just now has been following me around, tugging insistently at my sleeve for months, demanding my attention. This seemed to happen particularly whenever I was together with other church leaders struggling to discern the way forward for our congregation in this period of transition that's gone on for over a year now, 
between one senior pastor and her vision for our work and community and that of another who we don't know yet. Like the characters in the story, we feel left to our we left, feel left to our own devices a little bit, don't we? So it wasn't just the story that was persistent, it was a question in my mind. Which one of those characters am I? Which one are we? But still, no, I told Connor, though I didn't unpack my reasoning for them at the time, which was basically, no, because this story is hard. It offends people, and with good reason. There is something profoundly uncomfortable about a story in which the rich get richer, and the guy who is merely trying to keep money that is not his safe gets stripped of everything and cast out into the outer darkness with all of that weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not fair. And I am pained to say that I hadn't even stopped to think the first time I trotted this story out to try to talk about it with some of the other church leaders. I hadn't stopped to think that for those of my brothers and sisters who had faced profound injustice, not just in their own lives, but generationally for over 400 years, that master-servant scenario at its heart could make it really, really hard to see anything else. Of course, said Taunt Connor, when I told them about this, people are always going to bring their own histories to a story. The French painter Paul Cezanne, whose life's work is said to form a bridge between Impressionism, which was obsessed with transient flashes of beauty, and Cubism, which shattered a singular view of reality into often jarring facets that stubbornly refused resolution. Paul Cezanne said that the view contains the viewer. We each start out life at the center of our own universes, something that the writer David Foster Wallace called our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it, he said in a commencement address to graduating seniors at Kenyon College. There is no experience you have had that you are not the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is there in front of you or behind you or to the left or right of you on your TV or your monitor and so on. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, real. So as we each bring our fractured selves into stories, it's important that we leave room for others too. If you want to talk about a story, Connor told me, deal with that. Be okay with that. Just let people know where you're coming from and take them along on that journey with you. As we set out then, let's start by establishing a few details about the setting of this story. Beyond the obvious point that Jesus told it, the first thing I want you to notice is when he told it. It was one, one of several parables spoken to the crowd, crowds that jostled around him when, uh, during what we call Holy Week, that dizzying trip from entering Jerusalem to palm, palm fronds and shouts of, Hosanna, blessed is he, to betrayal, to execution, and to appearing alive again a few grieving, uh, to a few grieving women on Easter morning in Matthew's account. We experience this week each year as a kind of a weekend festival doubleheader, often with a vacation between Palm Sunday and Easter. But for Jesus, Palm Sunday was a work day. That's because in the rhythms of Jewish life, 
The Sabbath starts on Friday at sundown and finishes at sunset on Saturday. That means that for those laborers lucky enough to take a day or two of rest, that weekend is on Friday and Saturday, making Sunday the functional equivalent of our Monday morning, the start of a new work week. So let's unpack Jesus' final work week a little further. It starts, as we've said, with what we often call his triumphal entry, but that when it came right down to it amounted to a very polarizing rabbi on the borrowed cult of a rather unglamorous donkey showing up for duty in the beleaguered Jewish capital that was under Roman rule. The crowd's going wild. But Jesus' in the days to come is marked by urgency, foreboding, impatience, and even distance. Whatever else he may have understood about how it was all about to go down, he alone seems clear that day that his life's journey was almost over. And throughout the week, he's very preoccupied with leave-taking. If we don't see much of a cuddly, let the little children come to me kind of Jesus that week, it's because at this point, he's a man who knows he's run out of time. We don't get all of the details, of course, but what the preceding chapters of Matthew tell us is this. After dismounting from his donkey, Jesus heads straight to the temple and busts up a market in the outer courtyard, flipping tables, scattering tables, cages of doves, and furiously telling all the buyers and sellers there that they have desecrated God's house of prayer and made it into a den of robbers. A bunch of blind and lame folks have followed him up to the courtyard, so he does the thing. He rolls up his sleeves and he heals them, while all around him the chief priests and the teachers of the law, whose oversight of the temple he has just roundly condemned, huddle and gesture and hiss, and finally confront him, totally scandalized, saying, do you hear that all these children are calling you the son of David? And Jesus says, yep, and stalks off and goes to Bethany, where evidently he had some friends living to spend the night. So now it's the next day, which would be Monday morning, right? And he's up early and walking back into the city center. He spots a fig tree and he wants to get a little food into him, but finding no figs on the tree, he curses it and it promptly dies. It kind of kills me that other than healing the ear of the soldier that one of his unnamed disciples lopped off in the hubbub of Jesus' arrest later that week, this cursing of the fig tree is his last recorded miracle <laughs> as a mortal man. And the disciples trotting along after him are pretty shocked too. But here Jesus is really impatient and is like, look, don't worry about the tree. I'm trying to spell it out for you here. If y'all had been paying the slightest bit of attention for the last three years, you'd know that you also have access to the power that shaped the universe and that you could also hurl mountains into the sea if you needed to. Now hurry up, try to keep up with me here. This specific timeline of the next couple of days before Jesus gathers with his disciples for the first night of Passover on Thursday gets a little blurry. But two main things are going on in alternation. One is that he keeps running into the elders of the people, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, a known expert in the law, basically every possible representative of the religious establishment who challenge his authority, lay little semantic traps for him in pop quizzes about the law, and when all of this fails, plot to get him arrested by the Romans as a threat to the state. 
And the other thing he does is tell stories, unsparing and disturbing but ultimately very similar stories in which a king or a landowner or some mighty power who we understand to be a stand-in for God is throwing a wedding banquet or running late to pick up the bridal party or passing out cash. That last one is the one we're going to be concerned with in just a moment. But his subjects keep screwing up. And when they make other plans or they fall asleep or they show up looking like they didn't think much of the invitation, that's it. They don't get another chance. They get shut out of the party. In the very last one, the one that comes after this, it's about the separation of the sheep from the goats. And we understand, finally, that the choices that we make every day to have compassion and see the humanity of people who lack the basic necessities of life, like food, water, clothing, and provide these things or not, to care for someone who is sick or not, and to visit and be in community with those who are in prison or have otherwise been found to be unfit for decent company or not, we understand that these choices have eternal consequences. We learn that the grooves of our default settings are so deep and our fixation on our own comfort is so great that the first difficult task of growing a soul expansive enough to stand before the face of God is to learn how to even recognize it. But before we dispense with all of this background and I, have, and I let everyone have at the actual story, let me submit that when Jesus busts up the daily market over the temple or curses the church leaders for being hypocrites, for caring so fastidiously about the letter of the law that they have completely forgotten the spirit of it, which is to love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, a summation he came out with that week. When he does or says all that, when he tells this parable, he's saying, time's up. He's saying that sooner or later we've got to stop throwing up distractions or numbing ourselves with the way we've always done things and act. And we might not like to see ourselves in this story as servants to this master. But the reason that my old church I was telling you about was called Church of the Servant is because this Jesus, in the account of his Last Supper with his disciples, as it is told in the Gospel of John, this Jesus knelt like a slave and washed their feet and told them to do likewise. And if we'd still rather see that as a metaphor we can choose to ignore, in that same commencement speech, David Foster Wallace makes the point that, like it or not, we're all slaves to something. He says, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough and never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we know all this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. 
The whole trick is keeping up the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you'll end up weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship that you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. So, there once was a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. That's how it starts. So the first thing we learn about this man going away on his, uh, uh, going away on his journey and leaving a bunch of his people in charge of the store is that this guy is rich. Now, I deliberately chose for us to read this more traditional version rather than the contemporary ones that translate a talent as a bag of gold, or even in my otherwise beloved message translation that makes a talent equal to $1,000. I did that because if you're like me, the evolution of the Greek word talent to mean giftedness in the most flexible of senses has worked to make me pretty comfortable with my assumption that what we're talking about here is, you know, Modest little sum, but no big deal. What's up with that each according to his ability part anyhow? But talent is a Greek word, as I said, and the Gospel of Matthew was written in Greek, which means the original audience of this account would have understood that what Jesus was talking about was an almost unimaginable amount of money. My husband Andy a passionate student of history, helpfully trotted out his copy of the landmark Thucydides to explain that a talent was about the amount of money that would be needed to pay 200 rowers propelling a trireme in the Athenian navy for a month. Put another way, a talent was worth 60 minas, and each mina was worth 100 drachmas, and a drachma was a silver coin used to pay a laborer for a day. Do the math a moment, and we're talking about a single talent being worth 6,000 days' wages, or something like what a man might hope to earn in the 15 to 28 years of his prime, given that no laborer would ever be able to find or sustain work at that level every single day. So a fantastic amount of money. The median salary in New York is $59,752 a year. So to translate that into New Yorkian, let's figure that in Jesus' story, the one-talent guy, the one-talent guy, got about a million, million two. How's everyone doing so far? <laughs> Does that figure mess even a little bit with your opinion of the one-talent guy's decision to take that money and bury it in a hole in the ground? I wonder, in fact, what were they thinking? I mean, with the master away for who knows how long and nothing more coming in in that regard, how did this person plan to eat or drink or clothe themselves and take care of, you know, all of those basic human needs? I guess they must have thought it was all on them. You know, got to hustle. Got to look out for the old number one. You, you got to... Consider the living 
Wait, what? Consider the lilies and how they grow. They toil not. They spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Uh. And I know he watches me. Hold up. Hold up here. Who are you? I'm Mr. Two Talents. I'm, I'm Mr. Five Talents. I'm Miss Three Talents. Yeah. I'm sorry, Three Talents? Yeah. <laughs> three Talents? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I got cut from the original version for the sake of brevity. I, I used to tend to be a little child. <laughs> Well, this is unexpected, but kind of convenient, because we were just kind of wondering what y'all did with all that cash. I know, right? Opportunity of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yep. Okay, okay, I'll start. I, I bought a farm. A farm? Yes, yes. I mean, uh, um, and because I could offer a living wage, pretty soon I had all these folks working with me. Yeah, yeah, all, all, all these folks working with me. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then they, they saved up enough to get their own places and so on. And we went to have a, a roadside stall and a weekly market to a whole food production and distribution system. And we're now feeding a whole region and, 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 and organic, too. I see. And, uh, Mr. Two Talents, what about you? Well, uh, for me, it really started with the kids. I mean, I know that the master has such a heart for them, so when I saw the opportunity to give them, to give those kids some hope, I just went for it, you know? I built a school and hired a bunch of teachers. Hey, y'all. Hey. Yeah, those are my teachers over there. And we started a school, we started with a school, but then pretty soon all kinds of artists and tradesmen started volunteering their time and really connecting with those kids and eventually opening up a building and building things for the broader community. Wow. Well, I can't even imagine what you got into, Mr. Five Talents. Construction. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. General contracting, urban planning, affordable housing, you name it. Uh, I'm really kind of a big deal. <laughs> uh, well, I guess I just figured, since people are coming from all over for the food market and all those cultural events happening around the school, someone strategic, like me, ought to think about how to put it all together, build a, a proper community center, decent housing, a hospital, a library, a park you might want to spend a little time in. Let the kids run around and kick, kick back yourself with some friends and enjoy some laughs, huh? And it really took off. People loved it. And I started hiring straight out of the trade school and I still could hardly keep up. People came from far and what even I could hardly believe it. Yeah, a lot of people said it was like heaven on earth. <laughs> wow, just fascinating. You know, I, I've got to start wrapping things up here, but before I let you all go, can you answer one nagging question that I've got? That each according to his own ability bit, what's that all about? Well, you know, 
this work isn't for everyone. You have to work hard. Yeah, take some risks. I mean, not risks exactly, since the master let it be known that anything done with his vision in mind is going to work out. But you gotta put yourself out there. So sh show some initiative, uh, some creativity, like the master. Yeah, 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 great, yeah. So, we've taken a few imaginative leaps here. But before you decide whether that was fair or not, I want you to notice just a few more things that Jesus actually did include in the story. Jesus said when the man comes back, everyone gets the same treatment. The man goes down the line and Mr. Five Talents is there and he says like, hey, hey, look, I did all this and your five million has doubled to 10 million. And the master's like, cool. You did well with a measly little five million. Now I'm gonna let you see what serious wealth looks like. Come and share your master's happiness. And the next guy, the same, and the next guy, the same, each one so excited to show that their ideas had blossomed, their little corner of the kingdom had doubled, and the master saying every time the exact same thing, awesome, I love that. You did such a good job with that little bit. Now let me show you what serious wealth looks like. Come and share your master's happiness. Does it make a little more sense now why the master can't even anymore with Mr. One Talent? Mr. One Talent, who had more, more given to him than he might hope to get on his own steam if he worked from now until he was old and broken. That guy actually walked up to the master's face and said, yeah, so I was on to you the whole time. I mean, take care of my kingdom while I was gone? While I'm gone? Yeah, right. I knew that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So here's your crummy talent. Take it. I've kept it under lock and key for you all these years. Just leave me alone. Now how about Jesus? Can you understand how little patience he had in that moment for one who had been given a life and everything they could ever need to grow a soul expansive enough to enter into their master's happiness? And their takeaway was that the master was a hard man. Since it is up to each person to choose whose they are in this life, I'm going to turn the individual decision-making implied by Jesus' parable back over for each to think about on their own. But I'd like to finish this morning by asking this community to think in the collective. As we've reflected during our bicentennial year about the road we've traveled for more than 200 years, not just as a community organization, but as a faith community. Would you say that our needs have been supplied or that we've been pretty much left to our own devices? As we stand together before an uncertain future and take inventory, how many talents would you say we've got? Look around at the faces in this room. Look around at the faces in this room. Does seeing them fill you with joy, with the joy of recognition that we have already been given all that we need? Or do we fear that ours is a hard master who harvests where they have not sown and gathers where they have not scattered seed? Or is Jesus, who the scriptures call the word, Nothing less than the force that spoke this infinite universe into being. 
but compressed, translated into the one language we can all understand, that of a human life. Is that majesty taking on the poor and toiling and suffering flesh of a cosmic blip of a human lifespan? And for what? But to tell us that truly, we are created in the image of God, that we are made for this work, that we are beloved. Is this Jesus, the truth of our lives? Majestic God, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind? Who are we that you are mindful of us, human beings that you care for us? We are yours. To God be the glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust you were fed as well as challenged by the content. This audio archive supplements a video library of the entire service. The video, along with music from our internationally recognized gospel choir, is available on firstchurchbrooklyn.org. We provide multi-access worship options both in person and online Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. We are live in the sanctuary, as well as firstchurchbrooklyn.org and the church Facebook page at facebook.com firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Visit firstchurchbrooklyn.org for more information on both online and in-person worship. Remember that now, as always, you are loved.